You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we have Vitali Katz and Nelson. Vitali is the chief investment officer at the Investment Management Associates. He has written two books, one titled The Little Book of Sideways Markets and the other titled Active Value Investing. He's often featured on Bloomberg, Business Week, Barron's, and the Financial Times. I think it's very important to note that this conversation was recorded more than two weeks ago. And as everyone knows, things in the markets have become quite crazy with national shutdowns and unprecedented volatility. With that said, many of the ideas that Vitali talks about are relevant for how to think about managing risk and preparing for many of the things that we've seen happen since the recording took place. So without further delay, here's our conversation with Vitali Katzenelson. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Preston Pish, and as always, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson. And uh, we're really excited to have our guest here, Vitali Katzenelson. Vitali, welcome to the show. Excited to have you. It's my pleasure. We're talking about your book, The Little Book of Sideways Markets, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. I think you have some amazing content in here. You have some amazing principles in here for people that are especially getting their feet wet in financial markets. But what's difficult is in the past decade, we have had anything but a sideways market. We've had an aggressive, some would even define it as an insane bull market. So when we look at where we're at today, I think if you went back into the 2000, 2005 timeframe and you were looking back then and interest rates were 5 to 7% back in that timeframe, everything appeared to be somewhat normal. And from a valuation standpoint, it was the economy was operating in somewhat of a normal manner. Today, and literally since the economic crisis back in 08, 09, they've kept interest rates at 0%. We're literally at the top of a credit cycle. So when you're looking at that and you're looking at the valuation of how that makes all other assets get priced with 0% interest rates, as a value investor, how does a person move forward in this kind of market and continue to use those crazy discount rates reasonably, I guess, is the question that I'm looking at. Because I'm like you, I'm a hardcore value investor. And I'm looking at these macro themes that we're being faced with. And I'm saying, is this all going to change? How is this going to change? Because it's all a function of inflation. So I guess I'm kind of curious just how you see the current market conditions as a value investor. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. For a long time, value investors felt that they don't have to pay much attention to the macro, right? Because and yeah, you could be kind of blissfully ignorant because everybody looked at Buffett and Buffett said, well, it doesn't matter what Federal Reserve does, etc." Well, there was a problem with that because people, mis- first of all, misunderstood Buffett. Buffett would basically say his decision making would not change even if he knew what Federal Reserve would do six months from now. But at the same time, Buffett wrote an article in 1998, if I remember right, about how the dollar was too strong and it's going to get weak, really talking about micro stuff. So Buffett did pay attention to that. However, Buffett was not trying to be a weatherman, trying to predict what the weather is going to be six months from now. 
but he was more like a climatologist, looking at the big events, climate changing events, and trying to adjust his portfolio decisions based on the risks and, I guess, and opportunities he would see from those climate changing events. So my point is this, as an investor, value of any asset is a present value of future cash flows. But those future cash flows in your analysis will be influenced by what's going on in the world around us. It's becoming more and more complex every day. And it's becoming more and more mutated by what's going on in the global economy. If you look at our economy, our earnings were basically flat last year. So our economy grew 2% real growth, 4% nominal growth. So which is not horrible, except we usually grow 3% real growth. Except our debt is now over 100% of GDP, and our debt grew 5.6%. In other words, to produce this 4% number of growth, we had to borrow 5.6%. And so the stocks went up 30% last year, even the earnings were flat. If you ask me why the stocks went up last year, usually my answer would be, I have no idea. But I think the reason they went up because interest rates declined. So this is our economy. Then you look at China. But China probably has experienced one of the biggest bubbles, financial bubbles in the world's history. If you look at how much debt went up over the last 10 years, etc. So China has its own problems. The financial system is one prick away from having a, a very bad moment. And then you can look at Japan. And Japan is, again, it's an economy that's where its population is shrinking, its debt is growing, and it's the most indebted developed nation. And then you have Europe, of course, which is kind of a union of countries that kind of don't want to be together. It's kind of dysfunctional marriage of 20 plus countries. But anyway, my point is this. As a value investor, you look at this picture and you say, it doesn't look this great. And how this is going to play out? Well, I really have no idea because I can make a case for high inflation and I can make a case for deflation. And as a value investor, I, I say, I want to position my, for my portfolio for the environment where it can survive anything, what I call a kind of all-terrain portfolio. And you have to be a little bit humble because one of the mistakes people make today is that they take a point of view that we're going to have inflation or deflation. We're going to have high interest rates or low interest rates. And this take this binary view and they position their portfolio accordingly. If they get that right, they're going to make a lot of money. But the problem is the cost of being wrong of either outcome is too high. So as an investor, what I'm trying to err on the side of create a portfolio that would do well either in inflation or deflation, high interest rates or low interest rates, that means my portfolio is going to be suboptimal if one of the extreme outcomes happens. But at the same time, I will still do fine in a either outcome or still do fine, just won't make as much money if I just bet on that binary in that outcome. It's interesting that you would say that once you start to identify which trend that is emerging, then you can adjust your very defensive position that is more harmonious with a more inflationary or deflationary outcome. Yes, I'm probably going to have to make changes as time goes by because at, some, at that point I'll have more data to make this. Today, I have no idea. So when you look across the globe and you see the trend of the bond market since 1981, it has not been hard to be a successful trader since rates have gone down which has pumped up the value of bonds. And now we're approaching 0% interest rate in the US. In real terms, meaning you subtract inflation, you're already at negative rates. And many other places in the world, including Europe, you have been at negative rates for quite a while now. So I'm with you. Because if you do get more inflation, all of that unwinds so abruptly. So I'm kind of curious how you think about positioning yourself in this defensive way 
when you talk about both a scenario with inflation and deflation, what would a stock look like that is suitable for either of those outcomes? High quality, and you would be looking for significant margin of safety. When I say quality, what does it mean to us? It's kind of three broad buckets. It's a great business, great balance sheet, and great management. So what does great business mean? It's basically you have a company that have a significant competitive advantage, has high recurrence revenues, has high return capital, which usually comes with competitive advantage. Balance sheet, and that will be kind of a function of company's business as well. But if company has a very strong competitive advantage, you can afford to have a little bit more debt. But if lower competitive advantage, you need to have the balance sheet needs to overcompensate for that. And then when it comes to management, we're really looking for two things, how well they run the business and how well they allocate capital. And those are two separate analysis. Because one thing I found is that when you own a large company, the biggest impact management has actually not in how they run the business. Because usually when you have a large company, you already have a lot of layers of bureaucracy. So management can have an impact on it. But the biggest leverage they get actually when they make an acquisition that adds or destroys value. Because you can make that acquisition as a strike of a pen. So I really, ideally, would like to own a company where management owns a lot of shares. Because at this point, we are in the same boat. So that's quality. And then you need to have a significant discount to fair value because coming back to sideways markets, at some point, the PE pendulum will spin the other way. And when it does, the relative valuations, company was used to trade at 45 times earnings, now trades at 30. There is absolutely no reason why it can go from 30 times earnings to 15 or 10. And when that happens, it's going to be very painful for those investors. And one extra point I want to make, I feel like it's a public service announcement for investors today. You have a lot of investors who are buying basically high quality companies where they buy them solely on the dividend. Like I'll give you a few names. If you look at Coke, Coke is trading 26 times earnings. This is a company that's barely growing. It has a lot of headwinds because people will switch from sugary drinks to water, which is almost free. And it's trading 26 times earnings. But the only reason people are buying it because 3% dividend yield is better than 1.6%, whatever the 10-year treasury pays. And people look at that yield and say, well, Coke is not going anywhere. And therefore, it's better than treasury, except they start treating Coke as a bond. But see, the problem is bond is a contract. And then that contract, you know that the power value is 100. And you know what it's going to, you know, unless the company defaults, you actually know exactly how much money you're going to make. With Coke, the price is not a bond. Price is going to get in a different interested environment, it's going to get revalued. And so there is absolutely no reason why Coke cannot start trading at 13 times earnings. Again, the company is barely growing. And so you end up, if you are buying a Coke because you're getting 3% dividend yield, you may feel good, except until you realize you just lost 30 or 50% of your money when the stock price declined. So that's something that worries me. So whenever you say that you're also looking for a company with a great balance sheet, are you talking more in terms of the idea that the assets listed on the balance sheet have an enduring competitive advantage, or are you talking more from a numbers standpoint? I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on how you're looking at the balance sheet. So when I talk about the assets, I usually look at the, this almost kind of touches on a price to book, those metrics. So I spend very little time looking at the balance sheet and looking at the what's the book value of the company, unless I'm looking at the financial company. The only time kind of the balance sheet 
from that perspective on the asset side of the balance sheet matters and price to book matters is when you're looking at the financial company. But today, when I look at the balance sheet from defense perspective, I'm really looking how much that company has or a lot of times of balance sheet liabilities. So that's how I look at balance sheet. When we look at companies, for instance, I'll give an example. We look at how the maturity is staggered. Can the company pay off that maturity from the cash it has in the balance sheet or from its cash flows? So when I look at the balance sheet, it's spending less time on assets, but spending a lot more time on liabilities. So Vitaly, let's talk about growth. In your book, you have a quote by Warren Buffett. Growth and value investing are joined at the hip. And I love this quote because especially new investors look at growth and value as completely different concepts and categorize other investors as either value investors or growth investors. In your book, you talk about how value and growth do go hand in hand. Could you please elaborate on that for our listeners? One of my favorite quotes is, uh, there is value in growth. Just think about it. The, again, present value of any asset is a present value of future cash flows, right? So if a company is growing cash flows over the time, so the growth has a value. From an analytical perspective, the way when we analyze companies, we spend very little time looking at the next year's earnings, but we always look at earnings four to five years out. And we also do discounted cash flow models. But the reason we always look at the earnings four to five years out and then discount them back, because then if a company has grown business, so then we actually then we capture the growth in our analysis. So the problem is, and this is very important to understand as well, that growth is valuable, but it's not priceless. Okay, this is very important to understand. In the environment where interest rates decline from 6% to zero or to negative, actually, if you think about it, it's almost a relationship of growth. Again, companies who are growing earnings very fast, a larger portion of their value lies in the future. Companies who are growing earnings at a slower rate, more of the value lies in the present. So if you think about it for a second, this is really a relationship of long-term bonds and short-term bonds, right? Long-term bonds, when interest rates decline, they have long duration, and therefore they go up a lot. Short-term bonds go up less, okay? So in today's environment, when interest rates declined and became negative, companies that are growing very, very fast, they went up a lot. And I see a lot of investors I respect, now they own these companies that trade at incredibly high valuations, even for growth companies, even if you value their future growth. And they find ways to justify these high valuations. And the problem is that the narrative becomes these companies are so great, and they are, and they grow earnings so fast, and they do, that we can justify almost any valuation. And I think there will be a price to pay for that. So this is where you say growth is valuable, but it's not priceless. And I think that is the key I want people to understand because today you have a lot of companies that trade at 20, 25, 30 times revenues. And it's become a new normal. What it used to be 25 times earnings was high. Now we have 25 times revenues and it becomes okay. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., They know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. 
Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. I think for anybody that's hearing that, they're saying, how do we know when that transition happens? Because if we would have been saying this five or six years ago, well, we would have missed out on 100% upside based on how the markets move because the markets continue to bid this. And so although you're 100% right that the realization is going to come, how do we know that the realization is going to come in a time frame that makes sense to continue to exercise such a strategy? And I know that this is an extremely difficult question, but it's a question that everyone that's listening is probably thinking. Well, I think anybody who listens to this podcast, I think actually I have a simple answer for you. If you can figure out what the interest rates will do over the next 10 years, then you can either embrace or ignore what I told you. Because if the new treasury goes to zero and then goes to negative, I just did a great disservice to you. Because if you took anything I told you seriously, you probably would have made so much more money just ignoring it. You know, if interest rates start going up, or, and this is an important point, or we go into significant deflation, there are so many different combinations how bad things can play out. Because if you look at the global economy, we've been stretched so much by the amount of debt we have today. So you can have a deflation and negative interest rates, you can have a deflation and you can actually have interest rates go up a lot. So there are so many ways that bad things had happened. But if bad things start to happen, then the message I'm giving you is actually is a lot more valuable. But if we continue to have this kind of benign environment and interest rates to go lower, then you listen to me, I just did a disservice to you because you would have made so much more money just not caring about risk and just continue what you were doing. When you see a bridge 
that's built on sand. Do you really want to try to figure out which truck is going to be the one when it goes over the bridge that's going to topple it? Or should you just say, okay, we have a bridge that is unstable, and therefore we should operate under the assumption that at some point it's going to topple? So I am not trying to figure out what's going to do our economy in, what's going to cause the price turnings to decline, etc. I'm just trying to operate as if it's happened. I'm expected to be wrong for a long time until I'm right. But that doesn't mean that I'm not making money. It just means I'll be taking less risk, probably will be making less money if somebody took more risk. And at some point, I'll be rewarded for not taking excessive risk. And I think that is the important thing that people don't talk about. When you invest, it's both the yield you capture, but it's also the associated risk you incur. Yield can be measured, but risk can't. The investor with the highest return one year is not necessarily the best investor. He might just have taken the biggest risk. In 1997, if you were concerned about market's valuation and the exuberance, then you would have been wrong because it continued in 98 and 99, and then it blew up in only three years later in 2000. So if you were speculating in the stock market in 99, you were making a lot of money and people like me and you would be making money, but not as much. And Buffett wasn't making much money. And then, and those people would look at us and say, well, these guys don't understand it, et cetera. And then when things would blow up, you realized that the risk they took showed up in the returns. And a lot of people lost 50, 70% of their money where rationality came back to value investing and Buffett was up in 2000, 2001, if I remember right. One point I want to stress, and because I don't want people to misunderstand me, I'm not saying you should time the market. What I'm trying to tell you is that investors should be valued individual stocks. And in that process, that's how a portfolio is created. And the amount of cash you have in your portfolio is byproduct. Can you find high quality companies that are undervalued or not? And if you can't, you're going to have more cash. And if you can, you're going to have less cash. And by the way, and this could happen in the market. You can be fully invested in the market that's making you highs if you are some parts of the market are blowing up or being ignored, or if you look globally. And I think that's the luxury we have today. We don't have to just look for stocks in the United States anymore. And in fact, if I look at my portfolio, probably two thirds of the buys I made over the last six months came from outside of the United States. You know, Meb Faber is really big on international value investing. He talks about it a lot, looking at PE ratios in other countries that have fantastic PE ratios, but aren't necessarily countries that people in the United States are comfortable investing in. So I'm kind of curious to hear a little bit more about how you view this as well. So when I invest in Europe, I almost feel as comfortable there investing as in the United States. If I start venturing into countries where I may or may not feel comfortable traveling to, then your position sizing should be so much different because the rule of law there is not as strong. You may wake up and find out that the company you thought you owned, you don't own it anymore. So I think the allocation to those countries would be lower and your position sizing should be lower because of that embedded risk. Again, in my mind, when I look at Russia, there were a few instances when investors woke up and discovered that the stocks they own, they don't own anymore because what government did or because they were minority shareholders. But if you take small positions, then you're probably going to be fine in a portfolio context. So one of the concepts you're big on is predictable earnings. Can you please define what that is and how we can apply the concept for our investment strategy? When you look at predictable earnings, it should be a very commonsensical way of doing it. You should really try to look at it and say, is that the business that would have a predictable earnings? And this really comes from understanding of the business. So if you look at the home builder, 
I don't even have to look at the company's income statements to tell you that business would not have predictable earnings, right? If I look at company that basically the nature of the product that it has a high recurrence of revenues, then that company generally would have very predictable earnings. Because I don't know, if you take a, a company like Beckton Dickinson, or you take almost any pharmaceutical company, this company is because the demand for its products is economically insensitive. And because people have to take the product, it's going to have very high recurrence of revenues. Therefore, earnings can be predictable. Obviously, when you look at pharmaceutical companies, the predictability could be interrupted by patents expiring, etc. But the good thing about it, you can actually know exactly when it's going to happen, for the most part. But when you look at financial statements, we basically look at what the revenues did during the financial crisis, during the recessions, and that tells you that's another way for you to find out how economically sensitive the business is. And you look at companies' cash flows, and you see how stable the cash flows are, etc. Those are kind of the little financial tricks. But I think at the core is really, it just use your common sense. You, if you look at the business, you can actually figure out, if you look at defense companies, right? Our defense spending only continues to go up. So that's a very high recurrence of revenue. So I don't have to even look at financial statements to know that these companies will have very stable earnings and cash flows, et cetera. So Vitaly, I'm kind of curious, what is an opinion that you have today that is unpopular that you think a lot of people would disagree with you on? I think that the, the FIN stocks, market looks at the basically FIN stocks as they can continue to grow at very high rates for a long period of time. And I would argue they can probably grow at a rate that above GDP growth rate, but probably the growth rate is not as high as the market expects. And I would say part of my argument would be is that Growth has been fueled in part by what you and I talked about, which is excesses in financial markets. Because the venture capital market, the kind of excesses and uh, zero interest rates are fueled, what would argue, bubble in a venture capital market, which these companies have benefited from. If you think about it for a second, if you are, I'll give you this analogy from 1999 era. Cisco was a great company. It had a competitive advantage. It dominated the router market, etc. But Cisco has benefited from that com bubble, not just because of its valuation, which was incredibly high, but because a good chunk of its revenue came from customers that were dot coms. They did not have sustainable business models. And so uh, when the 1999 bubble blew up, Cisco actually suffered because a lot of its customers went away. And consequently, its valuations suffered as well. And I would say, if you look at Google today, its valuation is not as high as Cisco's was in 1999. So that's not the analogy. The analogy is that a good chunk of its growth came from startups that were given money by venture capitalists and said, grow. Okay? And the way you grow a company like that, you basically, some of that you spend on engineers, some of that you spend on Google try to acquire customers. And when the only objective is to grow revenues, and at that time, it's not even relevant to what your customer acquisition cost is because you're willing to lose money as long as you can grow revenues, then you will be involved in uneconomical spending. And I would argue that uh, FANGs in general have benefited from that. And as this market becomes more rational, we're probably going to see slowdown in growth rate for these companies. And I think market still does not expect that. So that would be my kind of unpopular thought. Warren Buffett is famous for saying that he doesn't look at macroeconomic events and predictions when he invests. 
He was specifically asked about this after this dreadful week where stocks were slammed almost 15% in late February. And he said, and I quote, you don't buy or sell your business based on today's headline, end quote. And this was when he was specifically asked about the impact of the coronavirus. How much do you look at macroeconomic events when you invest? Seth Klarman said, we worry macro and invest micro. So when I put my worry macro head on, coronavirus may end up being a big deal in the short term. And it may have a big deal in the long run for a different reason. In the short run, like it's not just about what happens to consumption in China, but also our global economy is so efficient and well-tuned to be just-in-time economy that in China is so important in global supply chain that I think these numbers are as accurate or inaccurate as newspapers they report them, but there's 400 to 800 million people and it's some kind of lockdown. And this is in the country that produces a lot of components that are going to global goods. So just that in itself, and we saw these numbers with Apple already, that's going to interrupt a lot. and That's going to have a significant impact on the economy if it continues. And then I read somewhere demand for cars in China declined, I don't know, 90% or something. And again, I don't know to believe these numbers or not, but to me, it's commonsensical when people around you are dying from a virus. Buying a car is probably not the first thing in your mind. So I don't know if that number is right or wrong, but directionally, it's probably right. One thought I have about the coronavirus, and actually relates to the trading dispute United States and China had, I think U.S. companies are waking up the fact that they should probably have less efficient supply chains, and they should probably have more diverse number of trading, having factories in more countries than just China. And while country that should probably benefit from all this is India, because if you are trying to diversify your supply chain, this is another country that has 1 billion people. And uh, India does not have the infrastructure, as efficient infrastructure as China has, but maybe capital inflows could change that. This is a brand new thought for me, and I haven't done anything about it yet. But one thing I realized, our economy was too efficient. It was too, we kind of, the global trade, the global trade was coming along for so long and so well. And we haven't had any interruptions of, really much of interruptions, maybe had some had tsunami in Japan, this kind of things, but there was very short-term interruptions. As we become more nationalistic, and that this is happening globally, I think it is going to happen that you're going to start seeing companies moving factories from China to other countries, and maybe India will benefit from that. But today, as an investor, what am I doing today? We doing a lot of homework continuous companies, or companies that will get disrupted in the short run because of uh, coronavirus. It kind of preparing a buy list. I'll give you a group of companies. One of the obvious choices would be companies that are great businesses like online travel agencies. They are phenomenal businesses, but they're always expensive. We are preparing a list of them because global travel is going to get disrupted by what's happening in China and actually now in other countries. And so we are hoping that these companies will decline. It doesn't mean that I hope the coronavirus gets worse. Please don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But I think as companies start reporting their numbers, investors will start to realize this is actually real and we may get an opportunity to buy those. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. 
They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com slash advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. I think your comment on the just-in-time supply chain, because I mean, this is a fundamental that's taught worldwide at any business school, is how do you optimize your supply chain? And it really kind of comes down to the variance of the arrival of these supplies and then just trying to optimize the living heck out of that inventory that you're sitting on. And so any company that's trading at a market cap above $50 million probably has a very aggressive just-in-time supply chain so that they're not sitting on a bunch of inventory. And since this has become so systematized in our economy, we haven't seen a shock like the potential that this has, in my personal opinion. And I think when you start going into some of these issues of just-in-time supply chain management, it is going to be very different. What an interesting topic. Like you, I feel horrible for all the people's health and livelihood that this is impacting. And unfortunately, I'd like to say that I think that the trend is not going to get worse, but all the numbers are suggesting that it is. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out moving forward. I have a six-year-old daughter and uh, she had a fever last week and we went to the doctor and the doctor says, well, she has a virus. My God, what if it's coronavirus? She did not have coronavirus. But just the thought of that, just the fear that kind of engulfed me. And I realized that, my God, this is what's happening in the rest of the world. Like, 
And as a human being, I just, I really hope it doesn't last this long. And I, all my fears about this are overblown. About the supply chain, one of my favorite books is uh, Nassim Taleb's Antifragile. And there he talks about if economists designed a human being, that means we would have a one kidney, you know, we would have one kidney because who needs two? It's inefficient. Okay. And I feel like if you look at the global economy, it's kind of have today that has been designed by a lot of economists, right? Because we kind of right now we have one kidney and, uh, and, we, and the companies waking up that we probably need maybe two or three. Yes, it's going to be inefficient, et cetera. But in the short run, there are inefficiencies, but in the long run, it makes our business a lot more predictable and stable. And I think that's where we're going. Vitaly, I'm sure people listening to this interview are as impressed with you as we are. Please give our audience a handoff to where they can learn more about you. So my articles can be read at contrarianedg.com. However, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably like to listen. So we have audio articles and it's a intellectual investor. Or if you go to investor.fm, basically my article is read to you. Again, contrarianedge.com and investor.fm. Well, Vitaly, I can't thank you enough for making time out to chat with us. I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. Like I said in the intro, some great principles for investors to think about when they're going through this. And we've experienced just a wild decade. Sometimes the best position to be in is to just do the exact opposite of what everybody else is doing. So your principled ideas that you talk about in your book are really, really good for people to reread, to understand as some of these transitions might be on the horizon. So I just thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, guys. Okay, guys. So for this segment of the show, we'll play a question from the audience. And this question comes from Bruce. Hi, guys. My name is Bruce. I am a huge fan of the show. Thank you so much for all you've done. I think I've learned so much more uh, on this show than, than in school. And I have a few uh, university degrees. So thank you again for this. My question is about compounders. Uh, we're taught as, as disciples of Buffett to look for these great businesses at fair uh, or, or cheap prices, if, if possible. But I'm wondering why we are doing this because most retail investors, and by retail investor, I mean somebody with less than a billion dollars, should be looking for doubles. Am I not right? I mean, shouldn't we be looking for businesses that, that are going to double quickly within a year? and then flip, move on. That's how Buffett did it, if I'm not mistaken. Would we be not wiser to focus on Buffett's partnership letters, read those deeply, and try to understand what it was he did to get to the point where he then had that problem of how to compound my huge wad of millions? Curious to hear your thoughts, and thanks again for for all you do. I think that's a great question. I'm currently rereading The Essays of Warren Buffett by Lawrence Cunningham, and it's a highly recommended read. Now, in the book, Buffett specifically addresses your question, so I wanted to mention it here. And what he said was that it is possible to get higher after-tax returns going in and out of the market compared to the strategy of having compounders, which you also refer to. And this is especially true if you have small sum of money to invest for. Now, he says that the reason why compounders are such a great strategy for him is, and I quote, we have found splendid business relationships that are so rare and enjoyable that we want to retain all that we develop, end quote. So 
what does that mean to us? As you mentioned, investors with less than a billion dollars, we are in a very different situation. And in contrast to someone like Warren Buffett, we typically don't have a relationship with the management. Now, I personally buy compounders instead of what you refer to as doubles uh, for two reasons. The first one is that the long-term capital gains tax is 50% in the US, but I live in Denmark and the tax rate is 43%. So it's very expensive to move in and out. But even so, even if I could pay the same lowest tax rate as you do in the US, I don't think I would change my strategy. Because finding doubles and buying and selling at the right time is just very, very difficult. And not only because you get penalized with taxes, but you also pay commissions, spread, etc. whenever you trade. So for me, I just found it easier, if I can even use that word, to invest in compounders than so-called doubles. This strategy comes with a lot more stress too, that is just not suited for my personality. Compounders are typically easier to find, but it's also easy for other people, so the trick is rather to find them at a good valuation. And if you compare that to two of my long-term positions, Berkshire Halloween and Mikel, I would say that I would have a much easier time determining intrinsic value, and I can buy the dip while they continue to compound the intrinsic value for me. And so whenever I specifically mention those two picks, I think most people would agree that they are great businesses. That is not hard to identify. It really does come back to the valuation. So to answer your question, yes, measured in stock return, it would be better to find doubles if you are a great stock investor. But if you're more humble about your skill set, and I'll put myself in that category, compounders would on average be a better strategy for you. So Bruce, one of the things you have to think about is these companies that do these 2x or 3x type returns typically, typically speaking, have a smaller market cap. When you're dealing with something that has a smaller market cap, it also has a lot more volatility risk, and it also has a lot more risk from a competitive advantage standpoint. So these smaller businesses, if someone wants to compete with them and take up a substantial portion of their market share, that can happen, and it often does happen in that startup or small cap space. So um, where I think it gets tricky is a lot of people that read Buffett's earlier stuff you got to understand his age. You got to understand his risk tolerance at that point in his career versus where he is now as a person who has a legacy and has a just ridiculous amount of cash to move around and can only really funnel it into highly capitalized, massive businesses that aren't going to be able to pull a 2X in a year. So that's where I think some of it kind of breaks down when you're looking at those timelines and you're looking at the, the, at the change in his investing philosophy, not only because of his age, but also because of the capital that he has, and then also the legacy and responsibility that he holds to all those shareholders to make sure that he doesn't lose their money. So I think those are some of the factors uh, when you're specifically studying Buffett on your strategy. Now, if your risk tolerance is very high and you're comfortable and you feel like you understand the sector and you want to go in there and put some of those highly volatile type positions on, have at it. I, I think that it's something that you can only answer that personally for yourself. And I would say this to you, if you have a company that just went 2X and it's because they developed a new product or service that's revolutionary in that field of business, it might go 10x in the coming two or three years, especially if it was a smaller cap type company. That kind of stuff can happen. So it's really important that if you start getting these 
big gains on something. You're not looking at it from, I made a bunch of money, so let me take my money and run. You're looking at it from an owner's standpoint. As a business owner, you have to understand your competition that's going to come in and potentially take your market share. You got to understand your product and, and what kind of moat there is around that product or service. And if you can answer those questions and you understand what those are, you might want to keep holding even if, if, even if it's gone up 200, 300, 400% because you understand your business as an owner. So I would highly encourage you to think from that mindset and not be too quick to maybe cut some of your large substantial wins as well. All right. So Bruce, for asking such a great question, we're going to give you free access to our intrinsic value course for anyone wanting to check out the course. Go to tipintrinsicvalue.com. That's tipintrinsicvalue.com. The course also comes with access to our TIP finance tool, which helps you find and filter undervalued stock picks. If anyone else wants to get a question played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and you can record your question there. If it gets played on the show, you get a bunch of free and valuable stuff. All right. So before we let you go, remember to check out a new feed with bonus episodes about how and why Preston and I started TIP, the business model behind TIP, and Tobias Carlyle even drops by in Pitt Southwest Airlines. You can check out all of our bonus episodes on themasterspodcast.com slash extra. That is theinvestorspodcast.com slash extra, or you can check out the links that we included there in the show notes. But guys, that was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of The Investors Podcast. We'll see you guys again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by The Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.